Meet Mr. Market As we saw in Chapter 5, the power of the outside view can be harnessed to help mitigate our otherwise mindless processing. When it comes to the vagaries of the ups and downs of financial markets, Larry Summers provides us with the outside view. He co-authored a paper in 1989 that explored the 50 largest moves in the U.S. stock market between 1947 and 1987. Summers and colleagues scoured the press to see if they could find any reason for the market moves. They concluded, On most of the sizable return days, the information that the press cites as the cause of the market move is not particularly important. Press reports on adjacent days also fail to reveal any convincing accounts of why future profits or discount rates might have changed. To put it another way, more than half of the largest moves in markets are totally unrelated to anything that might be classed as fundamentals. Price volatility is a fact of life in financial markets. Ben Graham described the reality of excessive volatility as being in business with a partner named Mr. Market, a very obliging chap. He says, Every day he tells you what he thinks your interest is worth, and furthermore offers either to buy you out or to sell you an additional interest. Sometimes his ideas of value appear plausible and justified by business developments and prospects as you know them. Often, on the other hand, Mr. Market lets his enthusiasm or his fears run away with him, and the value he proposes seems to you little short of silly. In short, Mr. Market is a chronic manic depressive, or suffers from bipolar disorder, as it is now known. Those who focus upon market price for investment advice are doomed to failure. John Maynard Keynes pointed out the irony of the situation. He said, It is largely the fluctuations which throw up bargains, and the uncertainty due to the fluctuations which prevents other people from taking advantage of them. Of course, this volatility is the very reason why bubble vision exists. If markets were dull and boring, there would be nothing for the commentators to talk about. What can we do to protect ourselves against these noise peddlers? One of my former clients had a novel solution. They have just one Bloomberg terminal in their entire office. Anyone approaching the dreaded machine is subject to ritual humiliation. They view the noise as massively counterproductive to their efforts as investors. Turning off the bubble vision is a great step towards preventing yourself from becoming a slave to the market. Chapter 8. See No Evil, Hear No Evil. It's Time to Prove Yourself Wrong. Time for Another Brain Teaser. Let's imagine that you have four playing cards laid out in front of you. Each one has a letter on one side and a number on the other. The four face-up symbols are E as an egg, the number four, K as in king, and the number seven. I'm going to tell you that if a card has the letter E, then it should have a number four on the reverse. Which cards would you like to turn over to see if I'm telling the truth? Give it a little thought. If you are like an incredible 95% of the fund managers who have answered this question, you will get it 
Wrong. So no pressure, then. This question has by far and away the highest failure rate out of any question that I ask. It is also one of those biases that are immune to your performance on the cognitive reflection task we covered in Chapter 1. No matter how well you scored, the chances are you will still suffer the bias that underlies this problem. The most common answer is E and the number 4. The correct answer is that you do need to turn two cards over, and they are the E and the number 7. Let me explain. Most people get the E. If you turn it over and it doesn't have a 4 on the back, you have proven that I lied. If you turn the 7 over and it has an E on the back, you would have also proven that I lied. However, turning the 4 over can't help you. I said that E had to have a 4, not that 4 had to have an E. The habit of going for the 4 is known as confirmatory bias, looking for the evidence that agrees with us. Let's try another one. Imagine you are faced with the following sequence of numbers. 2, 4, 6. Your job is to figure out the rule I use to construct this sequence. To uncover the rule, you may construct other sets of three numbers, and I will give you feedback as to whether they satisfy the rule I used. If you are sure you have the solution, you may stop testing and tell me what you think the rule is. Most people approach this test by suggesting 4, 6, 8, to which the response is, yes, it fits the rule. Then, 10, 12, 14, which again garners a positive response. Many people think they know the rule at this point, and they say something along the lines of, any two numbers that increase in increments of two, or even numbers that increase by increments of two, to all of which the response is, that isn't the rule I used to construct the sequences. In fact, the rule used was any ascending numbers. But very, very few people ever managed to uncover the rule. The easiest way of doing so is to identify sequences that generate the response, no, that doesn't fit the rule, such as a sequence of descending numbers or a mixed order of numbers. But most of us simply don't think to suggest these kinds of sequences. Again, we are too busy looking for information that confirms our hypothesis. This behavioral pitfall of looking for confirming rather than disconfirming evidence is in direct violation of the principles outlined by Karl Popper, the philosopher of science. He argued that the only way to test a hypothesis was to look for all the information that disagreed with it, a process known as falsification. Charles Darwin often looked for disconfirming evidence. Every time he came across a fact that seemed to contradict his theory of evolution, he wrote it down and tried to figure out how it fit in. Unfortunately, not many investors are like Darwin. Confirmatory bias is all too common a mistake when it comes to investing and other spheres as well. In fact, it transpires that we are twice as likely to look for information that agrees with us than we are to seek out disconfirming evidence. Who do we choose to read? The people who agree with us most. Dick Cheney reportedly insists that the hotel TV is set to Fox News before he will enter it.
Who do we like to have meetings with? The people with the ideas closest to our own. Why? Because it makes us feel warm and fuzzy as human beings to have our own ideas repeated back to us, and at the end of the meeting we can all leave agreeing that we are all very smart. This is a lousy way of testing a view. Instead, we should sit down with the people who disagree with us most. Not so that we will change our minds, because the odds of changing one's mind through a simple conversation are about a million to one against, but rather so that we can hear the opposite side of the argument. If we can't find a logical flaw in the argument, we have no business holding our view as strongly as we probably do. The Sorry Tale of Sir Roger Not only do we look for information that agrees with us, but we tend to see all information as supporting our hypothesis. An extreme example of this tendency is provided in the pitiful but true tale of Sir Roger Tickborn. In 1854, Sir Roger was reported as lost at sea. His mother refused to believe that her son, whom she had lovingly raised in France, was gone forever. She kept putting out inquiries, asking for any news of her son. Twelve years after the loss of Sir Roger, it appeared that Lady Tickborn's prayers had been answered. She received a letter from an Australian lawyer, claiming to have found her son. The letter explained that, having been shipwrecked, Sir Roger eventually made his way to Australia, where he had become involved in a series of business ventures after having vowed to make a success of himself, following his miraculous escape. Unfortunately, the businesses did not work as well as he expected, and he had been too embarrassed to contact his mother. However, he had recently seen her inquiries and was filled with remorse for the worry he had caused her over the years. The letter concluded with a request to send money for the travel fare of Sir Roger, his wife, and children. Lady Tickborn was delighted to hear the news and sent the relevant monies to allow for the family reunion. When Sir Roger arrived in England, he was received by Lady Tickborn as her long-lost son, and granted a stipend of one thousand pounds annually. However, not all the Tickborn family were convinced that this new arrival was the real Sir Roger. After all, they reasoned, Sir Roger had been a lithe man of slim frame, but the new arrival was obese in the extreme. While people can change their size, it is rare that tattoos disappear. Sir Roger had some, the new arrival had none. Nor is it easy to change one's eye color. Sir Roger had blue eyes, the new arrival had brown eyes. He was also an inch taller than Sir Roger had been, didn't speak French, which Sir Roger did, and had a birthmark on his torso, which Sir Roger didn't. Somehow Lady Tickborn managed to ignore all this evidence. It was only after her death that the family finally managed to show that the Australian import was an impostor. He ended up serving ten years for imposture and perjury. Prisoners of Our Preconceptions While the tale of Lady Tickborn's blindness to evidence is extreme, we often find lesser examples. For instance, a group of people were asked to read randomly selected studies on the deterrent efficacy of the death sentence and criticisms of those studies. 
Subjects were also asked to rate the studies in terms of the impact they had on their views on capital punishment and deterrence. Half of the people were pro-death penalty, and half were anti-death penalty. Those who started with a pro-death sentence, stance, thought the studies that supported capital punishment were well-argued, sound, and important. They also thought the studies that argued against the death penalty were all deeply flawed. Those who held the opposite point of view at the outset reached exactly the opposite conclusion. As the psychologists concluded, asked for their final attitudes relative to the experiment's start, proponents reported they were more in favor of capital punishment, whereas opponents reported that they were less in favor of capital punishment. In effect, each participant's views polarized, becoming much more extreme than before the experiment. In another study of biased assimilation, that is, accepting all evidence as supporting your case, participants were told a soldier at Abu Ghraib prison was charged with torturing prisoners. He wanted the right to subpoena senior administration officials. He claimed he'd been informed that the administration had suspended the Geneva Convention. The psychologists gave different people different amounts of evidence supporting the soldiers' claims. For some, the evidence was minimal. For others, it was overwhelming. Unfortunately, the amount of evidence was essentially irrelevant in assessing people's behavior. For 84% of the time, it was possible to predict whether people believed the evidence was sufficient to subpoena Donald Rumsfeld based on just three things. One, the extent to which they liked Republicans. Two, the extent to which they liked the U.S. military. And three, the extent to which they liked human rights groups like Amnesty International. Adding the evidence into the equation allowed the researchers to increase the prediction accuracy from 84 to 85%. Time and again, psychologists have found that confidence and biased assimilation perform a strange tango. It appears the more sure people were that they had the correct view, the more they distorted new evidence to suit their existing preference, which in turn made them even more confident. Kill the company. So what can we do to defend our finances against this insidious tendency to look for the information that agrees with us? The obvious answer is that we need to learn to look for evidence that would prove our own analysis wrong. Robert Williamson, one of the many successful offspring from Julian Robertson's Tiger and co-manager of Williamson McCary Investment Partners, affirms, Julian Robertson was always adamant about seeking out the opposite point of view and then being completely honest with yourself and deciding whether your analysis overrides that. That's something we try to practice every day. But like most behavioral biases, while the answer may be relatively obvious, actually practicing the solution is generally much harder. One investor really stands out as having tried to protect himself against the dangers of confirmatory bias. Bruce Berkowitz, a Fairholme Capital Management. Rather than looking for all the information that would support an investment, Berkowitz tries to kill the company. He says, We look at companies, count the cash, and try to kill the company. We spend a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong with a company, whether it's a recession, stagflation, 
zooming interest rates, or a dirty bomb going off. We try every which way to kill our best ideas. If we can't kill it, maybe we're on to something. If you go with companies that are prepared for difficult times, especially if they are linked to managers who are engineered for difficult times, then you almost want those times because they plant the seeds of greatness. Berkowitz goes further and even provides a list of ways in which companies die and how they're killed. Here are the ways you implode. You don't generate cash. You burn cash. You're over-leveraged. You play Russian roulette. You have idiots for managers. You have a bad board. You de-worsify. You buy your stock too high. You lie with GAAP accounting. I suspect that investors could learn much from the approach that Berkowitz espouses. It essentially turns the investment viewpoint upside down, much like the reverse-engineered DCF that we saw in Chapter 5. By looking at the ways in which things can go wrong, rather than looking for all the evidence that everything is going well, Berkowitz is protecting himself, and, like all pessimists, stands to be surprised by the upside, never a bad thing, rather than surprised by the downside. Chapter 9. In the Land of the Perma-Bear and the Perma-Bull. When the Facts Change, Change Your Mind. Time for another game for you to puzzle over. Imagine two urns filled with millions of poker chips. In one of the urns, 70% of the chips are red and 30% are blue. In the other, the ratio is reversed, so we have 70% blue and 30% red chips. Suppose one of the urns is chosen randomly, and a dozen chips are drawn from it. Eight red chips and four blue chips. What are the chances that the chips came from the urn with mostly red chips? Give your answer as a percentage. If you are like most people you have probably just said a figure between 70 and 80 percent. Surprisingly, the correct answer is actually a whopping 97 percent. To arrive at this answer, you need to apply Bayes' theorem, a relatively simple formula which shows how the probability that a theory is true is affected by a new piece of evidence. However, very few people solve this problem correctly. They end up being too conservative. This tendency towards conservatism isn't just seen in odd mathematical problems. It rears its head in the real world as well. Doug Cass of Seabreeze wrote an article for Real Money Silver on May 27, 2009, which summed up the problem of conservatism very well. In this piece, Cass warns of the dangers of being a perma-bull, always bullish on the market, or a perma-bear, always negative on the market. He wrote, I have often written that both perma-bears and perma-bulls are attention-getters, not money-makers. The perma-bear cult, of which I have often been accused of being a member, never ever or rarely make money. Ironically, the perma-bear crowd is typically uninhabited by money-managers. For example, the large and highest-profile short-seller, Kinikos Jim Chanos is not a perma-bear, 
Jim systematically searches for broken or breaking business models, and he understands market and company-specific risk-reward. Rather than managing money, the perma-bear crowd is typically inhibited by writers of market letters, investment strategies, and economists-turned-strategists, all of whom have little or no skin in the game. They also make a lot of speeches during downturns, for a hell of a lot of money, and often write editorials in the Financial Times, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. By contrast, the job of a money manager is not to be dogmatic. Neither is it to make friends. It is to make money. The perma-bear species is a fickle breed, especially in its ardor for purging from its ranks anyone who breaks the faith. Woe betide a former perma-bear deemed less bearish. In summary, perma-bears, similar to their first cousin perma-bulls, rarely make money, and in the main, shouldn't be listened to most of the time, as even when they call a downturn, they almost always overstay their positions, and they may be harmful to your financial health. I can certainly sympathize with Cass' viewpoints on the dangers posed by perma-bears who turn bullish. Having been cautious on the markets for a number of years, as detailed in Chapter 2, I turned bullish in late 2008 and thought that markets, especially outside the United States, were generally very cheap in March 2009. When I expressed this viewpoint, I found that I actually got hate mail from perma-bear clients. I also have first-hand experience of conservatism at work. In the past, I was part of an asset allocation team at an investment bank. Every so often, we would get together to discuss our views. This usually involved a trip to the local pub, possibly not the best place for such discussions, where we'd have a couple of pints to put us in the mood for talking. Then we'd proceed to discuss where we had been right, which didn't take very long, where we had been wrong, which took much longer, and finally we would end up discussing why we'd been wrong, and how we would be right in the near future. Let me assure you that this was a very pleasant way of spending an afternoon, but a lousy way of making decisions. We were displaying classic conservatism, hanging on to our views too long and only adjusting them slowly. We were far from alone in suffering from conservatism. In one study of psychologists by a psychologist, surely a definition of twisted, the participants were given a profile of a young man, Joseph Kidd, who was seeking clinical psychological help. In the first stage, the psychologists were given just a very brief demographic-based analysis of Kidd. They were told he was 29 years old, white, unmarried, and a veteran of World War II. They were also informed that he was a college graduate who now works as a business assistant in a floral decorating studio. At the end of each presentation, the psychologists had to answer questions on kids' behavioral patterns, attitudes, interests, and typical reactions to real-life events. Stage one was deliberately minimal to establish a base rate with which to compare later stages. Stage 2 added one and a half pages of information about kids' childhood through the age of 12. Stage 3 was two pages on his high school and college experiences. The final stage of information covered his army service, 
and later life up to the present day. If you listen to the previous chapters carefully, I'm pretty sure you should have an idea of the kinds of patterns that were found. Average accuracy after the first stage was just over 25%, but by the end of stage 3, average final accuracy was less than 28%. Despite the fact that accuracy increases only marginally as the information increases, confidence explodes, as we saw in other studies in Chapter 7. It soared from an average of 33% in Stage 1 to an average of 53% in Stage 4. More interesting was that the number of psychologists who changed their minds at each stage was also monitored. As the amount of information increased, so the number of participants changing their minds dropped from 40% in Stage 2 to just 25% in Stage 4. As the researcher concluded, the psychologists may frequently have formed stereotype conclusions rather firmly from their first fragmentary information, and then been reluctant to change their conclusions as they received new information. Or, put another way, the psychologists made up their minds early on, and then refused to change them. This is a great example of the interaction between conservatism and confirmatory bias from the last chapter. Hanging on to your view. This behavioral pitfall, hanging on to your view too long, is observed frequently in the financial world. For instance, analysts are exceptionally good at one thing, and possibly one thing only, telling you what has just happened. In a recent GMO study, analysts changed their mind when there was irrefutable proof they were wrong and then they only changed their minds very slowly, a process known as anchoring and slow adjustment. In many ways, 2008 was a case study in financial conservatism. The recession that was engulfing all the major economies was eerily like watching a slow-motion train wreck. The head of research at the investment bank I was working at used some of my work to show the analysts that they were always behind the curve and incite them to do better. The analysts seemed to be able to grasp this, and went away to cut their numbers. Of course, the first thing they did was talk to their companies, as if they knew anything more than the rest of us, but that is another story. The companies, unsurprisingly, said the recession wouldn't affect them, even the cyclically exposed ones. After hearing this, the analysts came back to us and said, We can't cut our numbers. The following excerpts from companies' press releases typify the attitude. The first comes from a company that describes themselves as a specialist in industry-specific solutions, banking, human resources, and real estate. It reads, We have made the right choices in positioning, and we have implemented a successful business model, fueled not only by technological development, but also by both the trend towards outsourcing and enterprise consolidation. We don't believe that our business model is subject to a cyclical downturn that is often talked about these days. However, I think my personal favorite is this one. We are mindful of current investor concerns about the economy. However, our forecast continues to support our confidence in our ability to execute our plan. 
These customer initiatives have been driving investment in our solutions for at least two years, and we believe customers would only accelerate them in a more difficult economic environment. Essentially, this company is saying that a recession is just what their business needs, and they weren't receivers. This kind of statement reminds me of a twisted science experiment in which you dose rats with radiation and then conclude that the ones that survive are stronger. Well, they are stronger than the ones that didn't survive, but they sure aren't stronger than before they were dosed with radiation. These kinds of statements help explain why we rarely see analysts go from buy to sell, or vice versa. Generally, a smoother transition of recommendations is observed. Buy, to add, to hold, to reduce, to sell. Of course, by the time the stock reaches sell, it is usually time to buy it again. The classic study on conservatism, Ward Edwards' Conservatism in Human Information Processing, from which the urn example at the start of this chapter was drawn, concludes its analysis by saying, a convenient first approximation to the data would say that it takes anywhere from two to five observations to do one observation's worth in inducing the subject to change their opinions. In other words, people underreact to things that should make them change their minds. That certainly seems to sum up the average analyst. I should also point out that it appears that people are particularly bad at spotting regime changes. Researchers have shown that in a series of experiments using urns, like in the question previous, people tend to underreact in unstable environments with precise signals, meaning turning points, but overreact to stable environments with noisy signals, meaning trending markets. This helps explain why economists and analysts tend to miss turning points in the market. They get hung up on the stable environment and overreact to it, hence they miss the important things that happen when the environment becomes more unstable, such as a recession starting, and underreact to such developments. Sunk Costs at the Root of Conservatism So why are analysts and the rest of us so reticent to alter views? What is at the root cause of this conservatism? The answer seems to me to lie in the sunk cost fallacy. This is a tendency to allow past unrecoverable expenses to inform current decisions. Brutally put, we tend to hang on to our views too long simply because we spent time and effort in coming up with those views in the first place. For instance, consider the following scenario. As the president of an airline company, you have invested $10 million of the company's money into a research project. The purpose was to build a plane that would not be detected by conventional radar, in other words, a stealth plane. When the project is 90% completed, another firm begins marketing a plane that cannot be detected by radar. Also, it is apparent that their plane is much faster and far more economical than the plane your company is building. The question is, should you invest the last 10% of the research funds to finish your stealth plane? Well over 80% of respondents reply they would invest the last 10% of the research funds to finish the stealth plane. Now consider this scenario. 
As the president of an airline company, you have received a suggestion from one of your employees. The suggestion is to use the last $1 million of your research funds to develop a plane that would not be detected by conventional radar. In other words, a stealth plane. However, another firm has just begun marketing a plane that cannot be detected by radar. Also, it is apparent that their plane is much faster and far more economical than the plane your company could build. The question is, should you invest the last million dollars of your research funds to build the radar-blank plane proposed by your employee? This time around, more than 80% of respondents said no. There is very little material difference between these two questions. However, the first activates a sunk cost frame. We have already committed funds to the project, whereas the second scenario features no such prior commitment. This simple change has a truly massive impact upon the answers given. This highlights the power of the sunk cost and its role in creating conservatism. What can we do to guard against conservatism? Earlier I talked about the way in which one of my former team had analyzed our asset allocation decisions. Rather than hanging on to our views, what we should have done is give ourselves a blank sheet of paper, imagine our positions were zero, and say to ourselves, Given what we now know, would we open a fresh long or a new short? If the answer is yes and it corresponds to a position, then fine. However, if the answer is no, but the position is still running, then it should be closed out. We should all be encouraged to revisit our investment cases and approach them with a blank slate. Are they built on bad assumptions? For example, continued margin expansion? Do we still believe them to be true? Or did we miss something? If it is the latter, perhaps an analyst amnesty with no recriminations for changing recommendations, might help remove the conservatism bias. Of course, giving yourself a blank sheet of paper is easy to say, but difficult to do. So an alternative method might be a spot of job switching. In a professional setting, analysts should look over their colleagues' investment cases, rather than their own, and offer any adverse insight. This should help alleviate the anchoring on a position simply because it is your own position. Another approach to defeating conservatism is to play a game of devil's advocate, where certain people purposely construct the opposing viewpoint and question their ideas against yours. Edward Studzinski of Oakmark is a fan of this approach to ameliorating the problem of conservatism. He says, We have periodic devil's advocate reviews of all our large holdings and a separate analyst is charged with presenting the negative case. It's more than a debate society. The devil's advocate should genuinely believe the negative argument is the right one. We obviously make plenty of mistakes, but that discipline helps us reduce the frequency and severity of them. In investing, that's half the battle. Michael Steinhardt, the legendary hedge fund manager, had perhaps the most extreme response to conservatism. In his autobiography, No Bull, Steinhardt writes, I tried to view the portfolio fresh every day. Irregularly, I would decide I did not like the portfolio writ large. I did not think we were in sync with the market. And while there were various degrees of conviction on individual securities, 
I concluded we would be better off with a clean slate. I would call either Goldman Sachs or Solomon Brothers and ask to have us taken out of the entire portfolio. In swift trade, one of these firms would buy our longs and cover our shorts. In an instant, I would have a clean position sheet. Sometimes it felt refreshing to start over, all in cash, and to build a portfolio of names that represented our strongest convictions and cut us free from wishy-washy holdings. While the idea of selling the entire portfolio may sound a little extreme, it shows the discipline that is needed to overcome our behavioral biases. Hanging on to a view, simply because it is your view, is likely to end in tears. As Keynes said, When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Chapter 10 The Siren Song of Stories Focusing on the Facts Of all the dangers that investors face, perhaps none is more seductive than the siren song of stories. Stories essentially govern the way we think. We will abandon evidence in favor of a good story. Nassim Taleb calls this tendency to be suckered by stories the narrative fallacy. As he writes in The Black Swan, the fallacy is associated with our vulnerability to overinterpretation and our predilection for compact stories over raw truths. It severely distorts our mental representation of the world. To illustrate the danger of stories, let's imagine you are a juror serving on a first-degree murder trial. This is a trial like any other trial. The prosecution and the defense both present their cases. However, rather than deliberating as a jury, you just write down whether you think the suspect is guilty or innocent. Let's say that 63% of people think the defendant is guilty. Now, imagine the same thing happens with a slight twist. This time the prosecution is allowed to tell a story, and the defense can only use witnesses to refute the claims. The same facts are revealed. It is just the format of the information that changes. The prosecution lays out the facts in a neat story order, but the defense must rely upon the facts randomly popping up as the witnesses testify. In a rational world, this obviously won't matter. However, guess the percentage of people who said the defendant was guilty this time around. A staggering 78%. Now, let's reverse the roles. Now the defense can tell a story, but the prosecution must rely upon witnesses to build their case. Any guesses as to the percentage of jurors who thought the defendant was guilty under this treatment? A low 31%. This clearly demonstrates the power that stories have over us. A near 50 percentage point swing in the number of people saying someone is guilty of first-degree murder based on whether a story was told or not. Another frightening example comes from the realm of medicine. This time participants were given information on the effectiveness of treatments as a percentage of those cured overall, ranging from 90 to 30 percent. This is known as base rate information. They were also given a story which could be positive, negative, or ambiguous. For instance, the positive story read as follows. Pat's decision to undergo 
tamoxol resulted in a positive outcome. The entire worm was destroyed. Doctors were confident the disease would not resume its course. At one month post-treatment, Pat's recovery was certain. The negative story read, Pat's decision to undergo tamoxol resulted in a poor outcome. The worm was not completely destroyed. The disease resumed its course. At one month post-treatment, Pat was blind and had lost the ability to walk. Subjects were then asked would they undergo the treatment if they were diagnosed with the disease. Of course, people should have relied upon the base rate information of the effectiveness of treatment, as it represented a full sample of experience. But did this actually happen? Of course not. Instead, the base rate information was essentially ignored in favor of the anecdotal story. For instance, when participants were given a positive story and were told the treatment was 90% effective, 88% of people thought they would go with the treatment. However, when the participants were given a negative story and again told the treatment was 90% effective, only 39% of people opted to pursue this line of treatment. Conversely, when told the treatment was only 30% effective and given a negative story, only 7% said they would follow this treatment. However, when low effectiveness was combined with a good story, 78% of people said they would take the drug. As you can see, the evidence on effectiveness of the treatments was completely ignored in favor of the power of the story. Somewhat strangely, perhaps, price may even act as a story in its own right. For instance, which works better? A painkiller that costs $2.50 per dose, or the same painkiller discounted and selling at just 10 cents? Rationally, of course, they should have exactly the same effect, especially since both pills were nothing more than sugar pills. However, as you have no doubt guessed, the pills had very different reported effects. Some 85% of people reported less pain when they thought the drug had cost the higher price of $2.50. However, only 61% said the painkiller was effective when they thought it cost $0.10. Cents. If you prefer booze to pills, then consider the following story of price. Let's imagine you are given some wine to taste and told it costs $10 a bottle and then some more wine and told that this second one cost $90 a bottle. Most people who found themselves in this enviable position said the $90 wine tasted nearly twice as good as the $10 wine. The only snag is that the $10 wine and the $90 wine were exactly the same wine. People were simply misled by the price. Stock Market Stories Could something similar be at work in the stock market? Is it possible that investors shun value stocks because of their prior stories and low prices? As Joel Greenblatt has observed, one of the reasons people shy away from value investing is that the stocks you consider have poor stories. As he puts it, the companies that show up on the screens can be scary and not doing so well, so people find them difficult to buy. Support for this view comes from researchers who have explored the characteristics and performance of the most admired and despised stocks from Fortune magazine's annual survey.
the most admired companies tend to be those that have done well in the past, in both stock market and financial performance. They also tend to be relatively expensive. For instance, the average sales growth for a company in the most admired list is 10% per year over the last two years. In contrast, the despised stocks seem to have been disasters, with an average sales growth of just 3.5%. Thus, the admired stocks have great stories and high prices attached to them, whereas the despised stocks have terrible stories and sport low valuations. Which would you rather own? Psychologically, we know you will feel attracted to the admired stocks. Yet the despised stocks are generally a far better investment. They significantly outperform the market as well as the admired stocks. At the other end of the spectrum from value stocks is another group of stocks that have very different stories attached to them. I'm talking about initial public offerings. IPOs are companies that have come to the market for the first time to offer their stock to the public. Such stocks generally have great stories attached to them. One prime example that captured investors' imaginations was an online gaming company. The stock had a great story. Online was still sexy, and gambling was sexy squared. Everyone was exceedingly excited about the growth prospects for this firm. Investors simply couldn't get enough of the stock. The IPO was 14 times oversubscribed. However, investors significantly overpaid for the stock. There was simply no margin of safety for purchases. So when the firm missed their earnings report just six months after listing, the price halved, much to the chagrin of the investors. Sadly, this isn't an isolated case. IPOs always seem to entice investors to part with their cash. However, IPOs are, in general, truly terrible investments. For instance, in the United States, the average IPO has underperformed the market by 21% per annum in the three years after its listing, covering the period 1980 to 2007. Similar patterns can be found in most countries. One study used the methodology we outlined in Chapter 6 to investigate the potential source of this appalling performance. They reverse-engineered the price at which the stock came to market in order to try and find the implied cash flow growth rate that investors thought these stocks had. The average price implied 33% yearly growth. What did these stocks actually manage to deliver? Nothing short of a disaster. The average delivered free cash flow growth was negative 55% over five years. Talk about overpaying for the hope of growth. Despite the fact that long-term IPO underperformance is a very well-documented fact, investors keep stepping up to the plate and purchasing IPOs. I suspect this is because the stories overwhelm the evidence, just as occurred in the medical study outlined previously. Beware of Capitalizing Hope The problem of overpaying for the hope of growth isn't unique to IPOs. Ben Graham warned of the dangers inherent in the capitalization of entirely conjectural future prospects, or what today might well be described as the capitalization of hope. I suspect it is the most common mistake that I encounter when talking to investors. 
Rob Arnott and colleagues have found that investors nearly always overpay for the hope of growth. They take a novel approach to assessing the problem. Starting at the price of a stock way back in 1956, they compare this price to the actual delivered cash returns to investors, essentially the dividends and repurchases, over the next 50 years. This is an example of what is called perfect foresight. It imagines that if we knew exactly what the future was going to hold, what price should we have paid given the returns achieved? As Arnott notes, the market never failed to overpay for the long-term realized successes of the growth companies, even though the market chose which companies deserve the premium multiples with remarkable accuracy. Nearly half of the price-implied relative growth expectations of the growth and value stocks failed to materialize, so investors were paying twice the fair premium for growth stocks relative to value. Let me give you an example of the dangers of simple stories from the recent investing past. Although I could have selected from many examples, such as emerging markets decoupling, I've settled on the mining sector for the purposes of illustration. The simple story during the period 2003 to 2008 was that China was going to grow to the sky. Stories along the lines of Chinese demand is revolutionizing global commodity markets. China has already overtaken the USA as the largest consumer of iron ore, steel, and copper. The China effect seems unstoppable, were commonplace. As is often the case, there is no doubt a kernel of truth is contained within the simple story, but this shouldn't be the basis of an investment. Nonetheless, the mining sector caught the China bug, and talk of a mining super-cycle was rife. Based on these stories, let's see how the analysts reacted to the situation. If you were to look at a graph of the earnings per share for the global mining sector, you could see the massive surge in earnings that occurred in the period from 2003 to 2007. Now faced with such a surge, you might have thought the analysts would predict some kind of reversion to the mean. But no. Instead, they pumped up the supercycle, drank the purple Kool-Aid, and proclaimed, This time is different. Far from predicting a return to more normal times, the analysts predicted that the growth we had witnessed was just the beginning of something truly extraordinary. The analysts were forecasting 12.5% growth annually for the foreseeable future. This was pretty much double the rate than had been achieved historically. Of course, the analysts were completely wrong, as were the investors who had been following them blindly. Instead of a massive supercycle, the world faced the largest downturn since the Great Depression. This isn't just obvious with the benefit of hindsight. The straight-line extrapolation of growth forecasts is a classic sign of trouble ahead in real time. Focus on the facts. So, what can we do to guard against the siren song of stories? The answer is relatively simple. We must focus on the facts. As Dragnet fans will recall, just the facts. Stories usually have an emotional content, hence they appeal to the X system, the quick and dirty way of thinking. 
If you want to use the more logical system of thought, the C system, then you must focus on the facts. Generally, facts are emotionally cold and thus will pass from the X system to the C system. Ben Graham insisted that safety must be based on study and standards, and that valuations be justified by the facts, for example, the assets, earnings, dividends, definite prospects, as distinct, let us say, from market quotations established by artificial manipulation or distorted by psychological excesses. These wise words ring as true today as when Graham wrote them way back in 1934. But very few investors seem capable of heeding them. Focusing on the cold, hard facts, soundly based in real numbers, is likely to be our best defense against the siren song of stories. Chapter 11 This Time is Different your biggest advantage over the pros. Perhaps the most obvious area of contact that the public will have with behavioral finance, and certainly the most high-profile, is the occurrence of bubbles. According to the most standard models of finance, bubbles shouldn't really exist. Yet they have been with us pretty much since time immemorial. The first stock exchange was founded in 1602. The first equity bubble occurred just 118 years later. The South Sea Bubble. Before that, of course, was the Tulip Mania of 1637. At GMO, we define a bubble as a real price movement that is at least two standard deviations from trend. Now, if market returns were normally distributed as predicted by the efficient markets hypothesis, a two-standard deviation event should occur roughly every 44 years. However, we found a staggering 30-plus bubbles since 1925. That is the equivalent of slightly more than one every three years. Not only did we find such a large number of bubbles, but every single one of them burst, taking us back down two standard deviations. That should have happened once every 2,000 years, not 30 times in 84 years. This is the elephant in the room for those who believe in efficient markets. There is also a view that bubbles are somehow black swans. Taleb defined a black swan as a highly improbable event with three principal characteristics. One, it is unpredictable. Two, it has massive impact. And three, ex post Explanations are concocted that make the event appear less random and more predictable than it was. It would be terribly reassuring if bubbles were black swans. Then, we would be absolved from our behavior. However, such a defense is largely an abdication of responsibility. The belief that bubbles are black swans has found support at the highest levels. Both Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke have been keen proponents of this view, as they continually argued that it was impossible to diagnose a bubble before it burst, and hence argued that the best a central bank can do is try and mop up after everything goes wrong. Why can't we time predictable surprises? This is, of course, utter rubbish. It is an attempt to abdicate responsibility, 
Bubbles and their bursts aren't black swans. They are predictable surprises. This may sound like an oxymoron, but it isn't. Predictable surprises also have three defining characteristics. One, at least some people are aware of the problem. Two, the problem gets worse over time. And three, eventually the problem explodes into a crisis, much to the shock of most. The problem with predictable surprises is that while there is little uncertainty that a large disaster awaits, there is considerable uncertainty over the timing of that disaster. Take the credit crisis of 2007-2008, which has been described by Jeremy Grantham as the most widely predicted crisis of all time. Cacophonies of Cassandras were queuing up to warn of the dangers. Even some of the Federal Reserve governors were warning of the problems of lax lending standards. Robert Schiller reissued his book, Irrational Exuberance, in 2005 with a new chapter, dedicated to the housing market. Even I, sitting on the other side of the Atlantic, wrote a paper in 2005 arguing that the U.S. housing market showed all the classic hallmarks of a mania. This discussion of people warning of the danger of the credit bubble might seem odd coming just a few chapters after my rant on the folly of forecasting. However, I think a clear line can be drawn between analysis and forecasting. As Ben Graham put it, analysis connotes the careful study of available facts with the attempt to draw conclusions therefrom based on established principles and sound logic. So the big question is, what prevents us from seeing these predictable surprises? At least five major psychological hurdles hamper us. Some of these barriers we have already encountered. Firstly, there is our old friend, over-optimism. Everyone simply believes that they are less likely than average to have a drinking problem, to get divorced, or to be fired. This tendency to look on the bright side helps to blind us to the dangers posed by predictable surprises. In addition to our over-optimism, we suffer from the illusion of control, the belief that we can influence the outcome of uncontrollable events. This is where we encounter a lot of the pseudoscience of finance, things like value at risk, also known as VAR. The idea that if we can quantify risk, then we can control it, is one of the great fallacies of modern finance. VAR tells us how much you can expect to lose with a given probability, such as the maximum daily loss with a 95% probability. Such risk management techniques were akin to buying a car with an airbag that is guaranteed to work unless you crash. But as we saw earlier, simply providing a number can make people feel safer, the illusion of safety. We have also encountered the third hurdle to spotting predictable surprises. It is self-serving bias, the innate desire to interpret information and act in ways that are supportive of our own self-interests. The Warren Buffett quotation we used earlier is appropriate once again and bears repeating. Never ask a barber if you need a haircut. If you had been a risk manager in 2006, suggesting that some of the collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs, that your bank was working on might 
have been slightly suspect? You would, of course, have been fired and replaced by a risk manager who was happy to approve the transaction. Whenever lots of people are making lots of money, it is unlikely that they will take a step back and point out the obvious flaws in their actions. The dot-com bubble in the late 1990s revealed some prime examples of self-serving bias at work. The poster child for poor behavior was Henry Blodgett, then of Merrill Lynch. The scale of his hypocrisy was really quite breathtaking. At the same time, he was telling clients in a research report that we don't see much downside to the shares. He was writing internally that the stock was such a piece of crap. He also wrote, We think LFMN presents an attractive investment in a report while simultaneously writing, I can't believe what a piece of shit that thing is internally. Of course, Blodgett wasn't alone. Think Jack Grubman and the likes of Mary Meeker. He was just a particularly egregious example. The penultimate hurdle is myopia, an overt focus on the short term. All too often we find that consequences that occur at a later date tend to have much less bearing on our choices the further into the future they fall. This can be summed up as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Of course, this ignores the fact that on any given day, we are roughly 260,000 times more likely to be wrong than right with respect to making it to tomorrow. Myopia can be summed up via St. Augustine's plea, Lord, let me be chaste, but not yet. One more good year, one more good bonus, and then I promise to go and do something worthwhile with my life rather than working in finance. The final barrier to spotting predictable surprises is a form of inattentional blindness. But bluntly, we simply don't expect to see what we are not looking for. The classic experiment in this field shows a short video clip of two teams playing basketball. One team is dressed in white, the other dressed in black. You are asked to count how many times the team in white passed the basketball between themselves. Now, halfway through this clip, a man in a gorilla suit walks on and beats his chest and then walks off. At the end of the clip, you are asked how many passes there were, and the normal range of answers is somewhere between 14 and 17. You are then asked if you saw anything unusual. About 60% of people fail to spot the gorilla. When the researcher points out the gorilla and reruns the tape, people always say you switched the clip and the gorilla wasn't there in the first version. Basically, this study demonstrates that people get too caught up in the detail of trying to count the passes. I suspect that something similar happens in finance. Investors get caught up in all the details and the noise and forget to keep an eye on the big picture. A Beginner's Guide to Spotting Bubbles So what can we do to improve this sorry state of affairs? Essentially, we must remember Herb Stein's prosaic and prophetic words of wisdom, If something can't go on forever, it won't. This is a deceptively simple and yet immensely insightful phrase. If markets seem too good to be true, they probably are. Learning to remember this simple fact 
would help prevent a great deal of the angst caused when the bubble bursts. A good working knowledge of the history of bubbles can also help preserve your capital. Ben Graham argued that an investor should have an adequate idea of stock market history, in terms particularly of the major fluctuations. With this background, he may be in a position to form some worthwhile judgment of the attractiveness or dangers of the market. Nowhere is an appreciation of history more important than in understanding bubbles. Although the details of bubbles change, the underlying patterns and dynamics are eerily similar. The framework I have long used to think about bubbles has its roots way back in 1867 in a paper written by John Stuart Mill. Mill was a quite extraordinary man, a polymath and a polyglot, a philosopher, a poet, an economist, and a member of Parliament. He was distinctly enlightened in matters of social justice, penning papers which were anti-slavery and pro-extended suffrage. From our narrow perspective, it is his work on understanding the patterns of bubbles that is most useful. As Mill put it, the malady of commercial crisis is not, in essence, a matter of the purse, but of the mind. His model has been used time and again, and forms the basis of the bubble framework utilized by such luminaries as Hyman Minsky, one of the few economists worth listening to, and Charles Kindleberger, the preeminent chronicler of financial manias. Essentially, this model breaks a bubble's rise and fall into five phases. They are 1. Displacement 2. Credit creation 3. Euphoria 4. 